So, okay, session two, uh, as we are in our new unit, session two, if it dies, uh, is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Jesus offers hope to those who seek him. We'll be in John chapter 12, uh, verses 20 to 33. And uh, we're going to talk about gardening. <laughs> gardening. How does gardening work? Somebody explain to me. Somebody explain it to me too. I have like the worst. I don't have a green thumb. I have like the black thumb. It dies. So if you garden more, well, uh, you should put peas in in March. Like you, you till the soil, you dig it up. Then you plant the seeds, cover the seeds, water it, and let God give us the increase. How much do you get? How much do you get back from one seed? A lot. A lot. You should get a lot if yeah. it's working right. Yeah. If it's working right. If you have a green thumb. If you have a green yeah. thumb. Monsanto Key word being if. Yeah. 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 Monsanto. Yeah. 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 Not GMO. Yeah. But typically, yeah. you get, if you were planting corn, all you need is one kernel, mm -hmm. and you'll get a whole corn stalk, which will give you lots of kernels. Yep. Um, maybe even more than a couple, maybe even more than one ear on a stalk of corn. Mm -hmm. Usually right? But what does that one kernel have to do? Die. die. That's the die, yeah. See, now you seem to lead here. Well, we were, we were with you, right? You're, you're with me. <laughs> well, that's always helpful. <laughs> Sometimes y'all, I think, deliberately aren't following. Joe, you wouldn't do anything like that, would you? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, as we're talking about John chapter 12, uh, last week we were talking about the dinner given uh, by Lazarus and Mary and Martha. What's the event right after that? Passover? No, Passover's like days away yet. Huh? The triumphal entry. Yeah. I've talked about that one before. Actually, I think I preached on it a couple years ago. Um, I preached on Sunday morning on the triumphal entry. <coughs> we're not going to cover it, but I wanted to, because it's the backdrop of what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to kind of skip over. John just talks about it a little bit um, in, on his way there. This is uh, Jerusalem. Uh, you're looking, I'm standing in this picture. I'm standing on the Mount of Olives looking towards the Temple Mount. And I've showed, I think I've showed this picture in here before. This right here is a set of gates on the side of the Temple that faces the Mount of Olives. And they're a special set of gates. Anybody remember? The Eastern Gate. Uh, well, yes, they are the eastern That's gates. Where king. the king goes in. Right. These are the king gates that go up to the temple mount. And the only person that could enter there was the high priest once a year. And we, we talked about this uh, before. You can see they're sealed up. They're there. These gates are the king's gate to come in. And I'll show us I'll show some more pictures in a second. But those are the gates that Jesus entered while riding the donkey on his triumphal entry. This is why it is his triumphal entry. Because he comes in the gates that were forbidden to anybody but the king and the high priest once a year. And Jesus rides into these gates to the cheers and accolades of the people declaring him the Messiah. This is why they're so, the Pharisees and all that, they're, they're just done with him. Because he's doing something that only the king should do, which they refuse to recognize Jesus as the king, even though he claimed to be the king. Now, as you can see, there's a cemetery built there now, um, and that's the Muslim cemetery outside Jerusalem for the purpose of keeping uh, the Jewish king from returning and entering because they know the prophecies that Jesus is going to return, that he will touch down on the Mount of Olives and will come across and enter Jerusalem and it's, the expectation 
is, is that he would enter through the king gate since he would be the king. So to defile him, they built a cemetery in front of it and sealed the gates up like they could keep him out. I was right. going to say. Like, <laughs> yeah. He's got his mega lightsaber. Right? I, yeah, I, I know. But that, that's, what we, that's what we've got yeah. going on here. So Jesus is uh, coming to the temple. Now, um, that's back about here. This is the Temple Mount. This was the normal entrance here. Those are the steps that lead up into the temple that Jesus would have climbed. Um, this is the, the Kidron Valley right along here. Um, you can see this is the Jewish graveyard on the Mount of Olives. They're there, and the closer to the top um, is more expensive than the lower because the Jews know that Jesus will come and raise the dead and take them with him when the Messiah comes. So they want to be as close to where he touches down to, to be there. So, yeah, the, these are the cheap, the cheap seats are down here at the bottom of the hill. Are there still openings? Oh, yeah. It's like five, $6,000 or more. I can smatter in all of eternity. Right, exactly. So this would have been the entrance into the Temple Mound. Um, now, let me ask you a quick question. Yep. That is the uh, plaza where the uh, Dome of the Rock is? It's over, it, It's about right Back here. There, Back there, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's, yeah, this is the top yeah. of that uh, there. So I'm going to show us a picture. Now, this one I know I didn't show. This is a picture I took at the museum, the National Israeli Museum. This is a full-scale model of Jerusalem as described by historians, uh, Josephus and others of that day, that was recreated. Um, so this, it's beautiful, it's huge. Um, it, it probably, I mean, it's a, it's a scale model that would take up most of the area that the church is sitting on. Um, and you can walk around it and see it. So you're looking at the Temple Mount as it was the day of Jesus. There's those steps I just showed you. That's where you would go up and it would come up out at the top. Here's the temple itself where the Ark of the Covenant is. This is the entrance to it. So this is the gate. So I'm standing where I would have been standing on the Mount of Olives looking at the, uh, looking at the temple. So I'm standing in roughly the same position. Which is interesting because we went here first before I went there and took the same was able to take the same picture, which I had no real control about. But I think it's pretty cool. So this is this is that gate that he would have entered. Now you can see there's a road here and a road here. It comes to a Y, and that would have came across the Kidron Valley and gone up the uh, Mount of Olives. And as uh, as uh, we talked about last week, on the other side of the Mount of Olives is what Bethany. Bethany, where Lazarus was and that Jesus was staying and all that. It, it's roughly two miles. So, I mean, it's not far. This is the, where he would have came down the hill, up the valley, and then up into this gate riding that donkey. So that's, that's what that would have looked like. Um, let me give you another shot of this from a higher vantage point. So there's the gate, and here's, here's the temple. That's why this is the king's gate, because you can come right in and there's a gate right there in the, into um, the outer court where they're doing all the um, offerings and all that. This is the area of the Gentiles could be in, where this is here and here. But they could not enter into that area um, with it. Any questions as we look at that? So that's what Jesus did. He rides the donkey. Uh, he probably rode it up to the steps, got off, climbed the steps, and went in. And the crowds are all in the valley. They're everywhere, cheering and all that. So that's what's going on. That's what's taking place as we come to um, verse 20. So we were at the beginning part of chapter 12. There's a little section that describes this triumphal entry. And, and then we're right into chapter, or verse 20 of chapter 12. Other questions before we move on? Setting that stage. Okay. Jesus 
Jesus did not come to judge, but to save us from the judge. God will judge the world, and for those that are Jesus's, he will offer his payment for the judgment. You realize that? That's what's about to take place as we are moving through this section of John. Jesus did not come to judge the world. And if we flip to the end and go to Revelation, the judge who judges the whole world, we know is to be the Father. And that his whole purpose to come wasn't to judge. This is why he never dealt with the Pharisees. He kept trying to woo them to himself to accept him, but he didn't judge them because they were already judged by the Father. And we're going to see this. He's going to make this abundantly clear as we come through this lesson um, today. So let's start in chapter 12, verses uh, 20 through 22. Somebody go ahead and read those for us. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they just came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, wish you see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Alright, so here's what's happened. The triumphal entry. Jesus has come into the temple and he crossed from the king's gate into the Israel only. And he's in there. Now, I don't know. It, my, my guess is he probably came to make sacrifice or some such. I don't know. But he's there and these Gentiles, these Greeks, Come and Philip is, you know, standing around outside. And these Greeks come to talk to him. The Greeks could only stay in that area, the big area, um, the court of the Gentiles. Now, John is the only one that records this for us. And it's to underline the Pharisees' statement, which if you just look back a couple verses, you'll see it. The whole world has gone after him. That's what the Pharisees claim. Uh, I think it's like, it might be verse 18 or something. 19. 19, okay. Um, the Pharisees are upset because of the whole triumphal entry. So this is immediately following it. And they're watching what's going on. And their comment is the whole world has gone after him. Because now we've got Greeks. Greeks of all things, right? On the Temple Mount. And what are they doing? Are they there paying homage to these brilliant Pharisees and all that? No, they want to see Jesus. The world is looking for Jesus. Even the Gentiles are looking for Jesus. They're not happy. <laughs> They're not happy, are they? Huge. Huh? So the Pharisees would look at the Gentiles as presto logs for help. Yes. What did they did they think of the ones that actually came to the outer part of the temple any differently than the ones that didn't come at all? Well, if they can proselyte them and get them to become Jews and follow them, then that was a good thing. But if they weren't willing to do that, if they weren't really willing to take those steps to basically become one of their disciples, yeah, no, they, they weren't. Um, so the Greeks are introduced. Um, and the Greeks themselves really aren't that important. We, we really don't know. We'll, we'll see in a second. We don't know what happens with that. Just don't tell Steve, right? Right. <laughs> um, but these Greeks were what they called God-fearers. They had left their idolatrous backgrounds and had started looking um, at Yahweh. They started seeking the Jewish monotheistic um, uh, way of life, which was very moral. These were men who had looked at their world and the Greek way of life and realized how immoral it was and didn't want to be part of it. And so they had started to buy into Judaism. Sounds kind of like our world today, doesn't it? Everybody likes the morality of the Christian life, but they really don't want to be Christians. They want what it offers, the stability, the love and kindness for everybody, but not 
dying to self and having to follow Christ and, and all that. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more as we get into this. So these were God-fearers, and we have a lot of them in our world. Our country is full of God-fearers, but not true believers. And I think it's been that way for a long time. We, we had a country that was supposedly Christian, but they, they, were, they were God. They liked the lifestyle without the commitment to God. And they come to Philip and Andrew likely because they had Greek names. Philip and Andrew are Greek names. They were um, from uh, Bethsaida, and uh, which is a, it was mostly Greek city, and it was on the road, and so they, they, they would trade with them. So they, they probably spoke Greek um, and the like, and so they were comfortable coming and talking to them. Um, and they're wanting an introduction to Jesus. Now, when we talk about being introduced and stuff, the real question is, is how approachable <coughs> is somebody? Most people, if you, you know, especially famous people, you can't just walk up to them. They usually have their entourage. And, you know, usually a guy in a, you know, nice suit. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, right. He's <laughs> usually standing there with his arms folded and the dark sunglasses and the little earwig. Right. And, you know, <laughs> you, want, sir? you know, they, you, you just can't walk up to somebody famous. Um, you could, but it could be kind of hard. Well, right. You might, yeah, right. So we, we know the type. Uh, but how approachable was Jesus? Very approachable. Very approachable. But the Greeks didn't know that, did they? Because they hadn't met him. Yeah. This is this is their first interaction. So they go to what we would call as his handlers. <laughs> Philip, who then goes to Andrew, who then they go to Jesus. Now, mind you, he probably was inside the uh, thing, but the Pharisees these teachers that were famous had rings upon rings of, of followers and believers or, you know, that, you know, they, they don't have time for those. And they certainly wouldn't be interested in talking to Greeks. I mean, they're Gentiles, as Joe was pointing out. You know, if they were, if they were wanting to go through the process of becoming a Jew, uh, you know, that, that'd be a whole different story. Because now, oh, I, I'm, you know, it's like, oh, see the guys that I have brought in, um, that sort of thing, the notches in their belts. But so they, they, they go this way and they're dealing with that. They ask Philip because they think he can get them in. Likely Philip spoke Greek, right? So they, they could talk to him in their native language, which kind of gave him a little connection. But they were using Philip and Andrew as an intermediary because they thought Jesus was beyond their reach. Because they were Greeks. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, why would he want to talk to us? In today's world, do we do, we do this with Jesus? I'm, I'm not talking about other famous people, but do we do this with Jesus? Some of you are shaking your head. I think too. some people do. Okay. How? How do we see this in our world today? <laughs> Catholics have to go to the priest. Got to go to the priest. <coughs> Who do they pray to? Mary. 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 Yeah. Why? They don't feel they can go directly to Jesus. Right. To convince him, you know, his mother will convince him to hear our prayers. Yeah. yeah. Right? Or, or the Pope or the priests. Or, or what about saints? <laughs> I know a lot of evangelicals who, who pray to saints. To, to get Jesus' ear. But Jesus is approachable, isn't he? He would have talked to these Greeks. They didn't know that. But we, we, the, the disciples aren't really his handler, are they? They really have no clue what's going on. 
They they're just getting there firsthand. They're friends, not handlers. Right, they're friends, not handlers. There's, so we don't need to talk to them, do we? We don't need to pray to, to any of the apostles or any of the saints. Um, we don't need a priest. We certainly don't need his mother. Um, he is approachable. He wanted to meet people. He, that's why he would walk through the crowds. Remember, the parents wanted to bring children to him for a blessing. And the apostles tried to tried to handle the situation. What happened? No, no, no. Let them come to let, let, let the children go. I mean, he, this is a man who wandered around and touched lepers. Spoke to women. Spoke to women. Samaritan women at that, right? See, we, we, we see just in this one little passage how approachable Jesus is. And somehow, in our modern world, we've made Jesus unobtainable, which is sad, because it's so not him. All right, comment or question? So we get these Greeks. Now, in this next section, we're going to see why this is important, because it's like this is kind of like, yeah, yeah okay, what's, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. As I was preparing this lesson, now, I've read the passage before, <coughs> But in a minute, we're going to come to something I had never hmm. recognized. So just keep that in the back of your head as we look at this. John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. Somebody read that. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Boom! <laughs> what just changed? reason what he's saying to the people. It's not what they expected. Nope, but that's not what changed. Something enormous just took place. Of everything in the entire galactic universe, it just changed. He kind of set the time. It's going to happen now. The hour has come. Everything in, that we've been looking at from birth to that moment, my hour had not arrived. He said it over and over again. Every time they wanted to stone him, the hour had not arrived and he would just get away. The hour had not arrived. I can't do this. It's not my time. The hour has arrived. These Greeks show up and wish to see Jesus. And Jesus' response? Oh, sure, show him in. No. He announces to everybody standing there, the hour has come. The waited moment. The universe has been with bated breath for thousands of years waiting for this to happen. And these Greeks show up and it triggers Jesus to say, it's now. It's showtime. Let's go. It's unfathomable. How important is it? And it's just these Greeks. The whole world has gone after him. That's what he's waiting for. He was waiting for the whole world to be interested in him. He is now center stage. Everybody is watching. Not just the Pharisees, not just his disciples, but even now the Gentiles are interested in who this guy is. So when he comes again... You know, well, now everybody's waiting for it. But when everyone... Every, here, everybody was wait, wasn't waiting for it, but they were look, now they're looking for it. And now he's going to have the center stage as, he, as we move into his Passion Week, which is going to set up his second coming, which everybody's anticipating. Okay, that's what... Because, okay. see, nobody's, nobody even knows it's going to happen, mm. the second coming, until after this... As we 
look at this passage and he begins this movement to be glorified. He gives us this uh, statement, which most people start with uh, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you. That's usually, most, most of the time when you hear this passage taught, we, we don't bother with 23. But 23 is the most important part because he has now declared this. And then he explains what's going to happen. See, the verse 24 and following is the explanation of the hour. What is his hour? And he says, well, a grain of wheat has to die in order for it to increase. For most people, death is their humiliation. Death is usually humiliating. We've died. It's not pleasant to watch. I mean, we, we, we really don't like the whole thing because you lose control and everything that goes with it. But for Jesus, death was his means as, a, as the entry into glory. And he's been waiting for it. His willingness to die for others' sins in obedience to the Father brought him renown. He says, I tell you the truth. It introduces a solemn affirmation. The analogy of the kernel of wheat dying in the ground and producing many seeds teaches that the death is necessary for the harvest. That what is about to happen is crucial. A seed dies. That's what it's meant to do. It's grown for the single purpose of dying in order to produce more. <coughs> in an endless cycle, it produces more Ooh. seeds. They die, they produce more seeds. It's an endless cycle that just doesn't have any other purpose but then keep reproducing. <coughs> and Jesus says, that's what this is. It's time. It's time for me to die and produce the fruit. Everything is now going to happen. All the teaching, everything that we've been looking at in the book of John is about to come to fruition. And as we look at that, what does it mean to serve and follow Christ then? To die. To die. It means we have to die. But it isn't physical death, is it? Not usually. There are those occasions that martyrdom is, is required. But die to what? Ourself. Self. Yeah. We have to die to our selfishness. Why do we not explain this when we're explaining salvation to people? I mean, think about it. What is the most usual salvation do you conversation? Want, do you want to not go to hell? Do you not want to go to hell? That's usually where we start, right? Because it's hard for people to know to die the self. They don't, because it's hard, and they don't want to do it. When do we tell people that? Never. <laughs> <laughs> She's honest. We, we, we don't. Most of the time, it's, you know, come to Jesus. Yeah, unless you're, yeah, unless you're <laughs> like, I'm a downer. <laughs> I mean, uh, let's face it. I, there, there's no pie in the sky. It's going to be hard. It's going to be rough, and uh, it's ugly. But we don't. We, we tend to make it uh, an either or. You're either going to go to hell and suffer, you're going to go to heaven, and it'll be all, you know, fluffy clouds and harps and halos, right? <laughs> but that isn't what it. Right here, we see this. Jesus just explained it. We got to die. If we want to see a crop, a harvest, we have to die to self. We will not be successful in our Christianity until we die to ourselves. And at that moment, we will then be able to move forward and begin to have success in reaching others. It isn't more prayer. Prayer is great, don't get me wrong. But we don't need more prayer. We don't need more study. We need to die to ourselves. We need to swallow that pride, put it away, and reflect Christ. 
It's one thing to be saved, but it's another thing to have him as your Lord. Yes. Well, and that's, that's he, the, what did he say? My servants. If you're the servant, then you're not the master. Why is this so difficult? Because we don't want to give in. We don't want to give something up. <laughs> we don't want to give something up. Yeah. Yeah. We want to be in control. Right. Yeah. yeah. Control, right. I'm going to read to you this uh, thing. This gentleman has really succinctly explained this. The grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die that it may produce fruit. Even so, eternal life for the many come through the sacrifice of the one. And the same providential law is applicable to each individual believer. He must disown the imperious authority of his selfish ego if he is to live the life of an integrated person. He must abandon ruthlessly a self-centered existence lived in conformity to the standards of the world if the higher element in him is to be preserved unto life eternal. This he cannot do by himself. He must have an example to follow. Jesus is that example. By looking to him, a life of service to him is made possible, and the life of service constitutes the dying in order to live, which is the theme of Jesus' teaching in this passage. Ruthlessly! We have to be ruthless in dying to our self-centered nature. I love that. Because we don't want to be ruthless about mm. killing that, do we? <laughs> Occasionally we, we, we might put it in the corner or lock it in the closet. <laughs> but we have to be ruthless in digging out this self-centeredness that we have. This is an interesting way of putting it. If people decide that their lives are more important than God's will, <laughs> let me say that again. If people decide that their lives are more important than God's will, then they will forfeit the type of life God wants to give them, a life of relationship with him now and in eternity. Let that sink in. What's more important? My control of my life? Or a relationship with God. A lot of people are making the choice. They don't want to be bothered with God. He's got too many rules. He's got too much this, that, or the other thing. But he offers everything. Both here and later. It's not just pie in the sky. I have not known a Christian who lived that life to get to the end of it and say, I wish I didn't. I mean, the moral standards and all that, yeah, they're high. They're hard. They may not look to be as fun as uh, the world is offering, but the outcomes are far greater. The relationships you'll have with other people will be healthy, healed relationships <coughs> because we put the self-centeredness aside. We die to that. And we can live, work with each other the way we were meant to. Our relationship with him is only going to get better the longer we work, walk in the Go ahead, Cindy. Well, that's what yeah, the Bible sure. says. It's, what is it to gain Ooh. the world and to lose your soul? Yeah. Because, I mean, we think the world is everything to us, but it's not. It shouldn't be. Because when we come to Christ, we start to realize that we're not on our own anymore. It's not us. It's him. Yeah. Yeah. And see, that's what hell is going to be. You don't want a relationship with him. Okay, you'll have none of him. Mm -hmm. He's going to put them away without any of anything that he has to offer. You, you don't want him? Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. He's going to withdraw all his goodness, his love, everything of beauty and all that. It's all going to be gone. Because you, you, you didn't want no parts of him. It's going to be a sad, miserable place. Of course, it's going to be a place of pain and agony because nothing good will remain because all goodness comes from him. 
but people don't want to believe that. They want to believe that everything is basically good. People are basically good. Goodness is intrinsic. Um, good comes from two year old, right? Yeah. <laughs> Other comments or questions? This is heavy. But it's a passage that we just tend to overlook. Here we go. Now this passage, John chapter 12, 27 through 28. This is where we really get to the to the crux of it. Alright, so we go ahead and read this and then I'll make my comments. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Right here. Now, John does not record the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus pours out his soul to God as he prepares to go to the cross the next day. But Jesus is already in that mindset, isn't he? John is the only one that records this for us. Now my soul is troubled. This is the beginnings, the opening from the Garden of Gethsemane. Here we are. These Greeks show up and Jesus realizes what it means. The time has come and he's begun to be troubled. This is the triumphal entry. This is that Sunday. He's standing on the top of the temple on the mount referring to this. And we've got several days yet until the Passover in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's already starting to feel this way. And then we come to the thing that I never saw and didn't realize until this week as I was reading this. A voice came from heaven. We know about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus and God bellowing from the heavens. We know about the Mount of Transfiguration where God bellows from the heavens. Here on the Temple Mount, Jesus stands and he says, Father, glorify, not me, glorify yourself. And God bellows from the heavens. Jerusalem is full of people. All these people are there cheering Jesus and waving palm branches. We love to look at that. And they're all standing around. They followed him up into the Temple Mount. The Greeks even followed him up into the Temple Mount. They're standing around. This is the guy they're claiming to be the Messiah. And from heaven, God bellows, I have glorified it. I have glorified myself, and I will do so again from the heavens. Wow! These people... Are in several days are going to be chanting, crucify him. God just responded to his prayer. And yet in several days, they're all going to be like, nah, crucify him, put him to death, let him die. What a flip. You just witnessed God talking to him from heaven. Unbelievable. Do you understand how fickle we are as people? <laughs> this is a commentary on us, you, me, everybody. That we're that fickle, that we could be cheering and all that. And then to have, I mean, the triumphal entry is amazing. And when you contrast it with the crucifixion, it's, it's that. But when you put this in there, right smack at the beginning of it, that God himself responds and everybody hears it. Now, we need to put this in a little bit of a context. According to Jewish tradition, often, uh, they often discussed voices from heaven in the Jewish belief system, um, which were frequently regarded as a substitution for prophecy. Remember, this, this, there's been 400 years and there's been no prophet. No man of God has come forward to give a voice of God, so... It was believed that God would talk from heaven directly to, to everybody. So this was a, a, a not an expected, but an understood kind of thing. In ancient Jewish stories, God often answered prayers by sending angels, which may have seemed less dramatic to some of the hearers than a voice. So, you know, angels coming was, was 
that was usually an amazing thing. But a voice from heaven was like, wow, God, you know, in that. So this is, this is the mindset of these hearers. As we look at this. Glorify your name, God. Glorify the name of the Father. That's Jesus' concern. It's what he wants. See, this is the example of the seed dying. Jesus isn't about himself, is he? He's exampling what it means to die to self. I care about the Father's glory, not my own. Mine is irrelevant. God, glorify your name. And we see God speaks. God answers. In his comment, I have and I will. Jewish teachers who believed that God no longer spoke through prophets believed that he now spoke to them by means of voices from heaven, although it was not considered as important as the prophecies that were given before. So just because he billowed from heaven, this is why the Pharisees aren't impressed. They believe that the, the old prophets were much more important than anything God might say now. This is why they're not moved, because they're standing there, remember their comments, watching this whole thing. It's crazy. Look at all these people. They're chasing after him. The whole world's gone after him. And then a voice from heaven. Yeah, of course there'd be a voice from heaven. You can just hear him, right? Now this. Great, really. But they're, they're because they don't believe that it's that important. Can you imagine standing there? Question, comment as this sinks in. It's phenomenal, isn't it? Go ahead, George. Could you expound a little on I have and I will? Okay. God declared that he had glorified his name. God has all the glory. And we see it over and over through the Old Testament where somebody would do something to tarnish his name and he would purify. Uriah reaches out to touch the um, Ark of the Covenant which would sully it, and God puts him to death. Boom. Men praying, and all of a sudden, God does something. We see it with um, Gideon. His whole purpose of Gideon winning was to glorify his name. You got too many men, Gideon, get rid of some. Till they get down there, and Gideon's like, I, I can't do this, guy. We don't have enough men. Don't worry about it. I'm going to do it. It's not going to be you. It's going to be me. And we see it. Elisha. Uh, his servant. We're surrounded, the city's surrounded by, no it isn't. God's showing and God glorifies his name. Over and over and over we see these stories. They glorify God. We see that God is really in charge that he's the one. And God says, I have glorified it and I will because he's going to raise his son up from the dead and bring him to heaven and sit him on the throne and glorify him. And that will glorify the Father. Comment, question. We can't out-glorify God, can we? We just can't outdo it. And all he asks is that we die to self. And then do as he has done. Moving along. John chapter 12, 29 through 33. This is going to be the response of those standing there hearing this. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus draws all to him. The Gentiles are now looking for him. 
and they are only going to keep coming to look for him. People did not recognize the voice. Some of them thought it was just thunder. Some thought it was an angel. There were those that did know it. John. John knew who the voice was. John had been present at the baptism of Christ. John was present on the Mount of Transfiguration. He knew who this was that was speaking. He had been there. And he records it. He knew what was going to be. And we see Jesus tells us this wasn't for his sake because he was in constant communion with the Father. He didn't need God to billow from the heavens for him to understand. It was for everybody standing there's sake. It was for the purpose that they would recognize God. Go you know the, um, how Jesus says uh, his followers will know his voice? Yes. Is that kind of like the non-believers are saying, no, it's just thunder? Yes. It all comes to the, the sheep know the voice. They didn't know it. They thought it was thunder. They thought it was an angel because they're not his sheep. They don't recognize it, do we? Do we recognize this? Hopefully. <laughs> Just as all heard, all will be drawn to him. Now, I want us to understand this. This is universal. All hear. All are drawn, but not all accept and stay. He's going to draw everyone to himself. Some come to the cross to see a spectacle, to spit on him, to mock him. Some come to make sure that he's there and dies the way he's supposed to. Right? There are others that will come and will be broken and will accept him. But all come. Everyone deals with it at some point in time. Because not all understood not all will come to accept. Not all will come to embrace because they don't understand. Many because they don't want to understand. <coughs> Comment, question. It's just like the other two on the cross is one believed and one didn't believe. Yeah, exactly. Both were there. Both witnessed the same thing. I mean, we often talk about how, you know, Jesus walked with his cross all the way there and fell and all that. But they were there, too. They, fought, they walked the same thing. They all went there. Go ahead, Patty. The other guy on the cross, though, he said, he challenged him. He almost believed, but he said, if you are, do this. Yeah, he just couldn't, just couldn't get his head around it. This builds to our doctrinal doctrinal statement on salvation. Salvation is offered freely to all who accept Christ Jesus. See, that's, that's the catch. You have, you have to accept it. It's offered. Here it is, but not everybody takes it. Accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that, that Lord part is where most people stumble. They, they, they're happy to have him as co-pilot, uh, they're, they're happy for him to be back in baggage. Um, they want to take him with them, but they want to be in charge. And they, they, people can't get past that. That was the whole problem with the Pharisees, wasn't it? It wasn't that they didn't believe and didn't know. I mean, they witnessed many of the miracles. They knew. They had all that knowledge. We've been talking about how Jesus kept talking to them and using those terms and words and titles that were referenced in the Old Testament prophets that he was who the Lord was going to send. Yeah. And they just kept ignoring it because they should be in charge. We, we're the Pharisees. We're the, you know, if, if he would have came and set them up <coughs> as being, you know, the guys in charge, they would have, they, they would have, yeah, all right, yeah. Because they didn't die to sell. It's interesting. We always almost always hear a Lord and Savior in that order. Yeah. Usually Savior comes before the Lord. Yeah. When, we, when we accept, we have to accept Him as our, as our Savior, but then the Lord parts. Just kind of disappears. Yeah. yeah. 
Salvation is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption from the believers. He obtained it. I like that word. It wasn't free. He had to go and get it by dying. Tortured. Huh? I said tortured. Tortured. Yeah. This is where we're going here as, we, as we're working our way through John. Last chance, comment or question. All right, a few things that we can take with us. First, we can introduce others to Jesus. But that's all we can do. We can only introduce, just as Jesus introduced himself to the world, they have to make the choice themselves. We can't save anybody. We can't save anybody. We, we, all we can do is say, here's Jesus. This is what he's done. This is what he's done in my life. Following Jesus has costs and rewards. Dying to self will cost you. It always does. Because we can't live for ourselves. It may mean that, that you may get a calling to go to the deepest, darkest part of Africa and spend your life working among people that seem unimportant. Or whatever. The phrase is, please, Lord, don't send me to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you go. <laughs> Hope is found in faithfully following the Father. He had a plan for Jesus, and Jesus followed it. Lord, glorify yourself. That's our hope, is that when we faithfully follow him, we'll be the servants that are there with Jesus. And if he's there, it's going to be pretty good. That's going to be a heck of a party because uh, he's eventually going to be sitting on the throne. And we'll get to be with him, he says. But that's part of the cost and rewards. And all that. Lastly, Jesus draws us seeking him to the cross. That's where it all happens. Shudder to say it. That's where the magic is. But it isn't magic, is it? It's the self-sacrifice that he offers to pay the price that the judge requires. Because we've already been judged. We stand guilty. God's waiting to collect the payment. And the only option we have is to stand with Jesus and say, I accept and follow and serve him. Let's close. Father, you have glorified yourself through your son, the self-sacrifice he was willing to offer for us causes us to glorify you, to praise and worship and honor you. Lord, help us to do that with our lives, not just our words but our actions. Lord, strengthen us this week to die to self, to ruthlessly kill the self that we have and root it out for you. In Jesus' name, amen.